Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Rogue One. State your name for the record. Jin Erso. Forgery of Imperial documents. Possession of stolen property. Aggravated assault. Resisting arrest. On your own from the age of 15. Reckless, aggressive, and undisciplined. This is a rebellion, isn't it? I rebel. We have a mission for you. A major weapons test is imminent. We need to know what it is and how to destroy it. Is that clear? Yes, sir. What will you do when they catch you? What will you do if they break you? If you continue to fight, With us, together for the first time since the return of the Jedi commentary, are Neil Taylor of the Kid Dog. Be careful not to choke on your aspirations. And voice actor Alex Eading. I am one with the Force. The Force is with me. (laughs) Now this was the first Star Wars movie that wasn't an episode. If we don't count the TV movie Caravan of Courage and Ewok Adventure. Or the TV movie The Battle for Endor. Or the, they all- or the theatrically released Warner Brothers Clone Wars movie. Eh? <laughs> and far from the piffling $68 million that that made, Rogue One, with audiences hot for Star Wars again after The Force Awakens, raked in a cool billion dollars. So that wasn't for no reason, and we're going to start with as many positive things as we can find to say about Rogue One, because I have some issues here that are pretty significant to me personally, though, of course, you guys at home and you guys on the podcast may all love this movie. Well, I don't know. Let us discuss why that might be. Well, I love that it set itself apart from the Star Wars series without dropping in any kind of a text crawl. It was just, boom, here's the movie, you're in the Star Wars universe, let's feel this out together kind of a thing. I really do like the look of it in terms of, um, it, it is, the colour scheme's a bit dingy, but we'll come to that later, but I really liked how they managed to make everything look lived in, everything looked real. Um, I, I don't know how much they spent on set design or um, uh, costuming effects and that kind of thing, but it, it really did look solid and real to me. I liked how grubby everything was. Um, I liked how weathered the stormtroopers looked. It was kind of nice in certain shots to see, you know, unpristine stormtroopers. Mm-hmm. It, that was nice because a lot of the time when you see stormtroopers, they're in that pristine white uh, armour, and to see it sort of like on the prison the setting or on a lot of the others in um, Jeddah, they, they look mucky and grimy, like they should like that armour doesn't stay clean The thing it actually reminded me of the most was uh, Battlefront, how many of you guys have played the 2015 original version of Battlefront? I've played some, some of it, it. Mm. Uh, Granted obviously that was the, what, the third Battlefront game? 
just just in terms of being dumped in the world of Star Wars as a soldier and you're on the ground and within a few seconds you're probably going to die that that sense of being sort of in the brush and uh, you know with with, uh, with rebel commandos to your left and to your right wearing uh, accurate Hoth looking Endor looking sort of a, a, a blend of those two styles uh, gear or you know down stuck with the stormtroopers it, it felt that level of immediate. This film was being made, but you know, as as Battlefront was released, so it couldn't have been stylistically directly uh, drawing from Battlefront. It, it's just that they went for the same aesthetic for both of them. I suspect um, that this may have been deliberate, although I'm speculating. But it did give it sort of that feel of Pearl Harbor. That this is the inciting incident. This is the mm. the thing that kicks off the. Uh, the full-on rebel involvement that we've already borne witness to. Um, and that, for me, did emphasise that feel of it, of them trying to do something different, that they were trying to make a war movie, not an adventure story. That that was what Gareth Edwards was originally going for. Now, I know there was reshoots and stuff that happened. There was They weren't quite happy with how it turned out, possibly that it might have been a little too dark, because there's definitely sense in there of of darkness and that they're changing things around. Do, do we know exactly what happened in the uh, reshoots? Because Sharon and I have uh, had clues given to us by certain videos, but no one seemed to be absolutely certain. No, no one said outright just that the reshoots were happening. It's a little bit awkward because they did something with the trailers that was interesting, where or well, while they were going, they shot a lot Is of stuff. Is that interesting word again? Okay. okay the, 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 <laughs> sorry. I'm going to need an interesting job here. <laughs> during, the film, during the film, and Gareth Edwards and a lot of the actors just would see something that they, or or propose a shot that would look cool and they'd shoot it uh, they didn't use it but a lot of the times that might have ended up in the trailer uh, a big example oh, wow a big example would be the this the scene where uh, Jin turns the camera and the hallway lights up behind her mm-hmm. that's something that they they shot just in case and they ended up putting in the trailer i like that idea because that's a really good way of just putting stuff in the trailer that looks cool but doesn't necessarily spoil the film Although it is very leading in that trailer, I think there's a bit yeah. of dialogue from or monologue from Saw saying, "What will you become?" And then it goes, ba, 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 ba. and for no reason, because we've seen no context for Jin getting into it, she's wearing Tie Fight again. I'm like, "Oh my god, is she going to be a turncoat?" And it's like, "No, that's that's not at all in the film. That's completely misleading." What will you become? Dead. And the, the, that bit where she's stalking towards the TIE fighter that everyone's like, oh my god, that's going to be so cool. And it's like, yeah, we decided against that. The thing there is it, it comes down, trailers are a fine art in the end of themselves. You either tend to find that they spoil the whole thing. Mm-hmm. See Leonard, Norman get, Leonard Nimoy getting really annoyed at their um, the trailer department who spoiled Star Trek 3 for, for a lot of people. Oh, or Because right. they, they included the scene of the Enterprise being blown up in the trailer. He wasn't happy. That was meant to be a a surprise. I thought you were going to say that uh, the search for Spock, that the the spoiler was they find Spock. Yeah. The the trailer is them finding him. Oh, there you are. (laughs) You just haven't gone far. That was a short movie. To the whales. (laughs) To the good one. The last several years we've gotten into this strange trailer-focused cultural Mm. phenomenon that's happening where Mm. it's all about getting those hits online of trailers have been watched and trailers are so exciting and you won't believe what this trailer is showing off and it's it's 50 Easter it's turned eggs into you missed a weird, in this trailer yeah and it's turned into a weird um content 
circus, and I don't like it. I don't like it. Mm, I do wonder if part of that is the uh, the impact that social media's had on how um, films, particularly, but TV as well. Uh, are marketed and uh, pushed out and the cycle between deciding to make something, getting it made, promoting it and it going out into the box office to succeed or fail. The the fact that the buzz for a film can kill it before it's even in the can. Yep. I think there is a tendency for studios to basically want to know what their audience is going to be before they even really start the marketing (coughs) full on. Which would account for why they basically play out the whole movie in the trailer, delivering to expectant audiences a synopsis, a cliff's notes of the film, so that when they go in, they're not surprised. They complain about not being surprised, but they don't complain about being surprised, which is worse. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But if you think about it, they can't play with the budget of a film once it's almost finished. But what they can play with is the budget for the marketing. And if they sit there thinking, well, this has not really had a great response from social media, so we judge that it's not going to do gangbusters, they can cut back on what they spend on marketing it and at least save something. Hmm. There is, and I'm going to try not to be too you damn kids about this, Uh, there is a (laughs) culture of... um, as we've just said, the, the whole di- disassembling the trailer, spending sometimes hours. I've seen videos run for hours disassembling a two-minute trailer mm. uh, and looking at every single frame, analysing it, and just trying to work out what hidden messages are hidden in the trailer. Uh, when, a lot of the time with the trailer... How can you get out of it if you play it backwards? <laughs> it, uh, you know, within a few years, it will be about hiding things in the trailer. But right now, it's just about trying to get the wow factor. And then, oh, did mm. you see this? And things like um, Ready Player One trailer, uh, the second trailer came out today. And uh, there's a hell of a lot of, oh, did you see that in the trailer? Yeah, did stuff. you catch Tracer? Did you catch Chucky? Yeah. Chung Lee, stuff like that, yeah. But there are some people who just need to know absolutely everything before they go in so that they can be the most knowledgeable. And there are some people who already know quite a bit and are angry that other people think that the film is bollocks because they don't know about this obscure side bit which they couldn't possibly know about because it's not actually explained within the confines of the film. So there's the disassembly culture there. And then once the film's out, there's, there's only ever really, like, two strong feelings about a film it was really really bad or it was really really good it just depends on like if, if most people think it's good then there'll be the detractors saying it's really really bad the force awakens for example strangely enough most people thought the force awakens was good and the people saying that it was bad seemed to be under the impression that everybody thought it was bad so when i came first watched force awakens i came out slightly disappointed by it not saying the film's bad but i had so many expectations and everything going in it wasn't until, you know, watching it a few more times and really getting in that I really do love that film. Whereas rolling out sort of Rogue One, I quite enjoyed it quite a lot. But now a few more times I'm like, oh, I can see a few cracks in here and a few things that I don't like sort of thing. So There were a lot of people I'm, who actually said that Rogue One was fantastic and it proved that The Force Awakens was bad because, and then 12-minute video, 20-minute video, half-an-hour video, two-hour video. <laughs> I think I think in their own, for 
for good and bad, they both have their pluses and their minuses, but I don't think they detract from each other or, or anything like that. I think, I think though, that those two films are very different sort of in the statements and things that they've set out to try and do. True, but I think, for, and to be fair, I think Force Awakens had a much harder job. You know, this was a film that was a direct sequel to Jedi. We'd had the prequels and they had left, for the most part, for a lot of people, a bad taste in the mouth. Although some people online seem to now be defending them, which really baffles me. Because I think they're just bad films from the ground up. That came slightly uh, it, after the backlash against The Force Awakens. You know, Force Awakens has a really difficult job of it's, it's trying to get you invested in new characters while retaining a lot of faith to the original characters and setting up a lot of new new things. Whereas this one is, you know what, this is sort of a, this isn't a sequel to anything. It's just, it's just like a side adventure, a little bit to expand the universe. A little bit of one billion dollar earning, little bit. <laughs> but the expanded universe is a proof of, has always proved fairly successful for the Star Wars. So you look at their their legacy line. Is it legacy or legends? Legends. What, legends line. You know, there's so many. All right, there's a lot of garbage in there. I'll be honest, but there's a lot. There's good books in there too. The garbage will do. Yeah, it's lucrative enough in that people are very, very happy to write it. Mm. They're that big of fans. Okay, Alex. Um. To piggyback off of part of Neil's thought, uh, the defense of the prequels that I've seen online lately seems to be coming from uh, the uh, the kids who saw the prequels when they were the right age. It's mm. the same reason you are going to have a very difficult time convincing someone like myself that Hook, Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman's Hook was a bad movie, where <laughs> I guess I can see that nowadays – but it's still it's still gonna like come with some resistance for me because that movie was magic and I was the right age when it came out, uh, and I still to this day love it to death. You've got a point. Um, uh, nobody is ever going to convince me there's anything wrong with Teen Wolf or Return of the Jedi. The score here that you're hearing was not by John Williams, as per usual, but uh, by Michael Giacchino, who I often like to think of as the modern day John Williams successor. There is actually a lot of connective tissue between their styles. And, you know, clearly Williams is a major inspiration for him. Um, But one of the things that Giacchino does in almost all of his movies is he makes dad jokes out of the track names. So even in the most serious tracks for things like Planet of the Apes, he's got names like Past Their Primates, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Monkey to the City. I mean... Just hanging around with this guy must be a constant stream of this stuff. I love it. I love it because it's so crappy. Um, If you look at the soundtrack on Wikipedia, it's got his pun names for the tracks on Rogue One, but they're not the official titles. It feels like he submitted his score with the pun names and some guy at Disney looked at it and went, no, you can't call them these. Go back, give them new names give them like real proper Star Wars names. So now it's gone from having a, some sense of personality like Jincarcerated now becomes Wabani Imperial Labour Camp. Going to see Saw is now Trust Goes Both Ways. That new Death Star smell when has become now and that doesn't even make grammatic sense. Jin and Scare It is A Long Ride Ahead. Jeddah Calls Saw is Jeddah Arrival. Go do that Adu that you do so well is now Confrontation on Adu. Have a choke and a smile is now Krennic's Aspirations. One of the central themes, Rogue One, was originally called Takes One to Rogue One. I mean, a lot of you might be going, well, I'm glad they did change it. 
world's worst vacation destination is now Cargo Shuttle SW-0608. I mean, he's taking the piss here. If he chose these alternative names, he's taking the piss. ATACT Assault, that's what the uh, ATATs are in this, was originally Bazed and Confused, because the character Baze. Very good. Switch Hunt is now The Master Switch. Transmission Impossible? Your father would be proud. Live and Let Jedi is now Hope. Do you see how this has kind of been just shoved towards the middle of what every film is? you got to go put the thing on the other thing and save the universe. And the only way we can do it is with hope. All right. Auditions for Jin Erso. Whenever you're ready, begin. Okay. We have hope. Rebellions are built on hope. Really good read. Fantastic. Thank you. Could you switch to page five and proceed with that line? Okay. Without hope, what have we got? So is this part of the same scene as the last line? No, this is later in the film. So she's just saying something very similar here. Um, uh, yeah, a little bit. My father built this. We have to find him. We have to have hope. The one thing they can never kill is our hope. And can I have you say that one one more time? More hopeful. Um, yeah. Our friends can come back from the dead if we all clap our hands together and believe. Because I just thought she was, um, like a jaded kind of rebel, fugitive, um, living on the other side of the law. I guess I, I was wondering where all this optimism comes from. It seems like she gets it very early on and then continues to have it no matter what. I like it. It's good. Santa will come if we just believe in the magic of Christmas. Hope is the crystal that Powers the Death Star of our dreams. Just, are most of these lines about hope? Uh, there's one at the end that isn't. Hurry. Get to the ship. Jenny Nicholson there, just kind of slaying it. Okay, uh, one other thing, uh, major thing that uh, stood in this film's favour with a lot of fans uh, was uh, finally being able to see Darth Vader, and uh, I was sat next to a Vader fanboy. I went to see a midnight screening. Uh, I'm going to go see um, uh, Last Jedi again at midnight, simply because I'm trying to avoid social media so nobody spoils it for me, so I'll stay up till three in the morning for that. So I was kind of a little bit sleepy in the middle of the film. When they were on Edu trying to pick up... um, Galen, I started snoozing but um, shortly after that, when we got to Mustafar and Darth Vader turned up, the guy next to me sat up in his seat and went (laughs) oh my god and I was like, easy mate (laughs) Jesus, what sound does he make at the end? Yeah, um, that's Did he the climax? <laughs> Did he end. have a crisis? I think he may actually have straight up climaxed. Uh, yeah, because he was he made the same sound when the, the lightsaber ignited, and then when Vader went ballistic, which is basically the beginning level of um, the Force Unleashed, uh, he was he was creaming his drawers because he was finally getting to see Darth Vader carving up rebels and killing people with his lightsaber. Jenny Nicholson, who I often quote, um, had a, an issue with this section, and I, I got it when I was sat right there. I, you know, I was like, 
Oh, Vader looks terrifying. I'm on. I'm, I'm. I'm. I. You know. Imagine how horrible it would be to have this specter of death coming at you down the hallway. Uh, but she pointed out that it's shot to make him look really cool, uh, and you know, obviously, it worked for this guy next to me who had a, a straight up boner with a box of popcorn balanced on the top. Um, and she compared it to imagine like watching Glory or something or a Civil War related movie, Gettysburg, and at the end. Like a bunch of uh, uh, um, Union troops are cornered by General Lee, and then he pulls out his saber and hacks them to pieces. And the music plays like this and goes, "Oh my God, General Lee, he's so fucking awesome!" And then like it sort of like it pans out and it shows a massive shot of General Lee going, "I'll get you next time." And then someone runs a message to uh, a guy in a big black top hat, and uh, you know he turns around and they say, "What's the message say?" And Abraham Lincoln turns around and goes, "Hope." Did it? Did it? Did it? The Civil War, and it just felt, it feels really I uncomfortable. Get that. <laughs> But I, I, the problem with that argument is it takes it fails to take into account the pop culture status of Vader. People love Vader like they love Freddy. They're the uh, villains. Certain so people it, love it's, General it's, Lee like they love. Uh, Freddy. I was trying to avoid that. <laughs> really but, yeah, but it's contextual. I'm getting to that in a bit. But continue. You know, Vader is too a, close to that now being in Texas. Yeah, <laughs> continue. Sorry. sorry yeah. I, no, I, I get exactly what you mean. He's like Jason Voorhees at this point. Yeah, and it's also. For me, it was. A, I like that scene because it's a redemption scene. Because we got the prequels, and they really hurt Vader because he is meant to be this very scary, intimidating guy. I, to me, it's a redemption. It makes Vader powerful and scary, and it shows you how powerful. Well, in this case, a Sith Lord is against normal, regular people. We we because again with the prequels and sometimes a lot with the like Rebels and that we see the Jedi's going against Sith, but not not too often against regulars. And you forget that they are the regular people are just majorly outclassed in every way by these people. And it, so, while yes, it is very I get what you're saying where it's a cool badass shot. It does reinforce the fact that Vader is meant to be flipping terrifying. Well, yeah, that's that's what I mean. That, like, had it been done from the point of view of Vader is flipping terrifying, that would sell only that perspective. But it also folds in Vader is flipping awesome, which is a different perspective. Yeah. Now, what one of the rumors that I heard about what was cut, Gareth Edwards stepped down from directing altogether, and they gave it to Tony Gilroy, the guy who wrote the Bourne trilogy, and Michael Clayton he directed. And uh, they did a lot of reshoots, uh, including a lot of the last act. From the sounds of it, the, the spire and the place where they get the information from were two different buildings. They had to go get the information from one building, and then they had to run it across the beach to the spire, go up, get the signal sent. So that's why you can see certain shots in certain trailers of Jin Erso and uh, company running on the beach, and it's likely that mm. um, they would have been running with the Death Star plans at the time. In fact, you can see Jin carrying a box in the teaser. And all of them are running. you got uh, Jen and Casper and um, T2SO and um, Blaze and uh, Brody and um, I know Donnie Yen's called Chewit Amway. I have difficulty remembering all of these names. They they get across the beach. There's walkers. They I think possibly Blaze and Chewit get crushed by the walkers underfoot because there were shots of that. But at the end, 
Cassian and Jin actually managed to get into a ship, possibly that TIE fighter, and mm. escape from the planet with the um, rather than transmitting it from the dish, like the dish gets damaged possibly by, by uh, an attack falling over or something like that. But uh, they have to get off the planet. Then they get to the ship. Get to the ship. And so they're trying to escape. That's when Darth Vader starts bearing down. They are the ones who have to get it to Princess Leia. But as they're passing it through the corridors, Vader turns up, kills all the rebels around them, kills Jin last. Now that would have been a Darth Vader is terrifying moment. That would have meant that you like it would have it would have given you difficulty with just siding with Vader if like I'm already a little bit uneasy about the fact that so much of Battlefront 2 was sold on the the uh, the back of you could be a stormtrooper you could finally the the empire's time has come now in 2017 when the empire are now space nazis. <laughs> I've always felt a little bit uneasy about how the, the, the equal weight they give to Rebels and Stormtroopers in, in uh, the Battlefront games way back to the Xbox days. Just the idea of, you know, I've, I, when I was a kid, I was always about, you know, we're playing the Rebels. Uh, I was never like, oh, can't wait to be a Stormtrooper, just going into villages and killing all the aliens. Because that, you know, I, even as a That's... kid, I was like, the Empire are a bunch of racists. See, the difficulty with representation is now that Star Wars was originally presented as it was a time of civil war, which suggests a clash of ideology. But the Empire was presented as this dominating force that would mass murder until it had order. That's Nazism. And the rebels were fighting for their very lives. It was very much the allies of World War II which is one of those conflicts you can point to and say, this was something that had to be done to prevent absolute tyranny. The Empire were also exclusively white males, with a scattering of white females added later, while the rebels were multicultural and peopled with the aliens that the Empire hated and considered lesser beings. It's really, really hard to say very fine people on both sides about these guys now. But that's... That's not how these games have been portrayed, and I think that's 2017 and stuff slightly encroaching on that. I don't think we've now we kind of look at it that way, but whereas before it was rebel, you know, it's good guys, bad guys, cops, robbers kind of style, without too much thought being placed on what that actually meant. I know there were a bunch of cosplayers who were, um, is it the 501st Legion, who were, yes. like, they're specifically Stormtroopers, and they all sound like a bunch of good guys, and they uh, they let Jedi hang around with them sometimes, just, you know, for... for they also do a lot of charity work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah from what I understand, the 501st is basically anybody who wants to be in the club and be an official, you know, Star Wars cosplayer kind yeah. of a thing can join up on that, and they have a lot of amazing resources, it looks like, because I've always considered, like jumping into a group like that I just need to find the right kind of uh, costume that I really want to put the put the focus on uh, <laughs> I would just find it difficult cosplaying in this day and age because I'd be like our helmets are literally skulls are we the baddies <laughs> <laughs> Star Wars has become, you know, much more black and white in a uh, a world that we were trying to push towards shades of grey, and then pushed back hard into black and white as as we got older and we we figured that things were more complex. It, it turns out that the world is actually a lot simpler than we thought, and there are really just truly evil people everywhere, and it just feels difficult to get with the idea of hero worshipping someone like Darth Vader now to me but um I really do uh, want to have I'm not going to hold it against that. people who still do 
um, that original cut. Uh, the, I guess the main thing that I have uh, take issue with for the movie is the is the uh, the reshoot kind of culture that we have because the story that I heard I cannot remember where I picked this up, mm-hmm. but I got it online, so who knows if it's true? Mm-hmm. But the story that I heard about this was that the reshoots came as a product of focus group testing, where a bunch Oof. of men who look like me, who like white guys with a bad taste in their mouth because their comment about gin was that she was too like mouthy or something like that whoa is a big reason that so that's that i'm a rebel i rebel is taken out yes things like that disappeared and we lost what i assume was a stronger female lead character uh and <laughs> gin ended up as a very chill otherwise yeah, don't so get me started <laughs> so's luke so's batman mm, that's <laughs> actually quite a good representation actually <laughs> but it's, it's those kind of things the Batman I want, trained I for years as a ninja sorry carry on <laughs> let it go Alex let it go never of the movie was I want to know what that original translation from the screenplay I actually is there a screenplay anywhere online I could read because I'd love to know Not what the aware of the closest you tend to find is what they all base the novelizations on is usually from one of the, an earlier draft I've for this podcast, I went through oh. Cataclysm, which is the prequel novel. I went through the novelization, and obviously I watched the film. And while there's bits in there that help clarify things, there's there's no major differences. You know, it's not like Force Awakens, uh, the novelization where Chewie rips Plink's uh, arm off. Oh, Jesus. Mm. Yes, the Wookiee really does rip someone's arm off. Okay. Um, but I want to know what that version of the movie was. I think that would... Um, that would really bring a lot of potentially strength back to Jin's character, as well as Forrest Whitaker's Saw Gerrera. Uh, I think they'd really step in. Um, sorry, we're we're starting to dive into the um, the breakdown of the maybe stuff we're not so happy with mm-hmm. on the movie. Find find um, things that that you liked. I love the cast diversity. I love that this film has a lot of representation potential in it. Um, I don't know if it was shoehorned in that way or not, but whatever happened, it worked out that there are a lot of people from different backgrounds in the Star Wars universe, and they are a lot of the human backgrounds are represented here, and I thought that was insanely cool. <laughs> this is a, a, a minus, but it's not one that I put brought up in my essay, but just to because you mentioned diversity... Pay close attention during the scene when the rebels, uh, the rebel council, are convened to decide what to do after um, Galen Erso is dead. Um, there's there's one white guy. He, he's like, oh, we, we shouldn't do this. The other two people who really are the representatives of rebel factions who really don't want to go on the attack and they want to run and hide are the black woman and the obviously stereotyped large-nosed Jewish man. I, I could be wrong, Ooh. but like, just like next time you watch it, he's the one going, "No, we've got to run," and it's like, "Oh, yeah, God. no, I think you're right." The British rule there with their moustaches and Mon Mothmas and, and going, "Yes, we should really go on the offensive," uh, and yeah, all the other countries in the world were going, "No, we should run." I was a bit confused. Why weren't we all on the Death Star? That's how yeah. it should be, isn't it? The salmon wants to go on the attack. <laughs> we should go on the attack right now, even if it's a trap. I think the General diff- Raditz. That's it. Raditz. I think the difficulty, the difficulty with that uh, comes from the simple fact
fact that nobody, and I mean nobody, gets enough to do in this film. Because, like I said, I went through the book, some of those minor glimpses that it gives you is the fact that right, the Rebel Alliance at this point is... It's not fractured, but it's all sort of pulling in its own different... You've got different people pulling in different directions, and it, it's actually the attack on Scarif and their victory there that solidifies and focuses the alliance. Mm. But again, that doesn't play in the film. It's not clear. It's these weird little ancillary notes that pop up in, in, in the book that, that fill that in, which is really annoying because it's like, no, that would have been nice to know and to yeah. understand that, that, you know, the alliance hasn't quite solidified itself yet in, into one direction that you've got, you know, Mothmo's trying to find a peaceful way. You've got this guy trying to find this way and, and whatnot. And it, the fails to, to get that across which is a shame because that would be a good plot point and Vader for all the Vader worship in there the, the beginning scene where uh, Krennic turns up at their house with uh, a bunch of black suited stormtroopers those those are Nazis that's the beginning of uh, Inglorious Bastards they don't in any way make those guys look cool look, oh, I wish I was there I could be the jackbooted thug pointing a, a, a gun at a defenceless family mm. they've even got this kind of sound to their masks which makes them sound inhuman it, it you know it shows that these guys have gone so far down the path of, of jackbooted thugs there's no soul left in them that's another positive for me actually with the exception of how his uh, particular story ends i thought krennic was a really good villain yeah his, he, the performance I thought was absolutely fantastic. Um, the, the, he seemed like a human. Uh, he seemed like a human being, and the the threads of um, neatly plaited together ambition and cowardice that mm. kind of motivated almost everything he did, I thought was really well put forward. Mm. I'd also a- give him some credit for um, uh, for his dialect work in this movie, mm. and he does a lot of screaming. And that is something that's very difficult. I mean, like, it sounds like I'm making fun of him, but I'm really not. I'm celebrating this. It's very difficult to scream and have high emotions and maintain a dialect that you're working on. So he Mm. did some work for this film to really get his uh, his British sound and remove the Australian sound. Mm. 2KSO. Yes, 2KSO is excellent. He was great. I I thought Alan Tudyk did a really good job on the voice, and he was... He was a uh, much-needed little bit of levity uh, from um, from time to time mm. in some some otherwise fairly uh, serious storytelling. Yeah, and uh, uh, Donnie Yen's character. Uh, well, it seemed like he was in a different movie at times. <laughs> like he was he was very perky and, and very kind of like you know the the, the not looking at, at you thing. It really sold the idea of of, of his uh, disability. But then when he started fighting, he's Donnie goddamn Yen. So I love the idea that like people just don't know who he is until now. And then he comes, he's in Triple X. It's great. Xander Cage. He's, he way outshines Vin Diesel and he moves like a 20 year old man. You know, he is really in shape right now. And uh, I would have loved to be, see him sort of take those skills and, and use them in a really protracted sequence at the uh, the end. Something really desperate where he was using his martial arts abilities. Just one man to take out an Atat in a way that didn't seem like Legolas, but actually felt like, you know, well, he's Donnie Yen. He actually probably could do this, you know? <laughs> well, For real. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But um, they set those two up to be very interesting. I like their dynamic. It's the old married again. couple. <laughs> Sorry. They are the old married couple, yeah. almost. It's the only way I can think of putting it. I love the line where he's wandering off in the rain. He's going, good luck. I don't need luck. I have you. No. He just knows that he's going to follow him. Yeah. yeah. They, set it, they set him up to be 
a badass early on when he takes out the the stormtroopers with a stick how bad is stormtrooper armor if you can be taken out with this you know talk to the evil stick (laughs) (laughs) and and they get the important thing out the way straight away is he a jedi no jedis anymore only fools and dreamers Hmm. yeah there is an argument about whether or not he is force sensitive too yeah, uh, he's uh, he's one of the wills or the guardians of the wills. So they they're definitely planting seeds. I think later on that they they are more force sensitive people out there that don't fall as Jedi or Sith. Mm. That's probably that is a way it could be taken in this film without it clearly saying yes. This guy uses the force to kick ass. Mm. And speaking, I of- interpret his performance as he is um, in, in tune with the force and he is uh, like listening. He is he's very able to kind of hear and follow the things that the force is kind of inspiring him to do which is why he's got insane reflexes and the ability to know oh there's a blaster shot coming at me i'm going to duck my head ever so slightly to the left and not die right now Hmm. and speaking of um uh, fanboys going i got that reference uh i was uh sat there going ah the journal of the wills that's like that relates back to like the early early drafts that of uh that lucas was writing of star wars in uh the the uh, mid 70s when uh, if you if you read uh, the um the, the making of star wars in a big ass thick book it goes on for a long time about the development of this thing and it was a mess it was a mess in the writing it was a mess in the filming it was a mess in the edit and it was down from the sounds of it to george lucas's wife Marsha, 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 Marsha. How do you know that name? Um, to, uh, and, and two other uh, guys who basically um, like changed the edit around. There's like, a video on YouTube called How Star Wars Was Saved in the Edit, and yep. I do recommend watching that because, yeah, she's the one that decided that basically, you know, I think it's the end, ending of New Hope. The Rebels just attack the Death Star. It's not attacking Yavin. Yeah. They just attack it. It's not near enough yet. They're just waiting to be uh, attacked, just sitting there like a plum. So she cut it so it's actually attacked. Could you imagine the end of New Hope without that that, that threat, that countdown timer? Without that ding, 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 seconds away, ding, 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 ding. So yeah, I I recommend watching that because it also explains how bad the opening... Strangely enough, I think this film slightly has this in common with that first initial draft of uh, cuts of Star Wars. Jumping where the back and just, forth between oh, stuff that doesn't feel relevant. Yes. I think, like, the opening of this, I know we've got, I'm wandering off into the negative, but it jumps around too much, and I think it needed to pick a... It needed probably to pick a character, and I'm assuming possibly, in the, if, if what Alex was saying was right, it probably stuck with Jen's character first, so that mm. you could follow that character and just have one character to follow would make it much more sense for those keeping track uh it jumped from lamu the planet with uh, Jin and her parents uh, when she was a kid then wobani where Jin is incarcerated then kafreen where cassian kills that poor sod then wobani again where Jin is still incarcerated but she gets rescued by the rebels then yavin where she gets interrogated by the rebels then Jeddah, where the pilot has been uh, taken Bodhi. i think i may have missed one Jeddah here actually I yeah think it cuts to Jeddah. yeah sorry it cuts to Jeddah 
Jeddah and Bodhi, and then it cuts back to Jeddah and Bodhi, and he finally meets um, Sorgerera. Then cuts to the Death Star. Then it cuts back to Jeddah, and he gets uh, interrogated. A lot of interrogations in this. This is the first time that it stays on a planet. They do the whole meeting Saw thing. Then they fly away from it, go to Adu, and it kind of slows down after this point. Then they go back to Yavin. There's the Mustafar section with uh, Darth Vader. And once they're on Scarif, they, they stay there again. So basically, like once it gets to Jeddah, uh, it, it, it calms down. There was definitely too many jumps back and forth that could possibly have been like boiled down to just what you need to know when we get there for that or first down to- act. Or boil down into, say, a text crawl. Yeah, yeah something like that. I, 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 they, they could possibly have combined the Jeddah sections with uh, the pilot all into one section once we're on Jeddah. Yeah, it, it, it feels a little or like scattershot up until, I would say, until it, once it calms down and, and picks itself, it, it's fine. But because it's decided it's going to be this ensemble cast, it kind of bounces around a bit and it's like, no, I'm trying to keep up here. Because I found that quite irritating this time around watching it it's like well this is a bit annoying i was just getting into what's going on with Jin, and now i'm over here with cassian and now i'm over here with bodhi and it's like now i'm over here with krennic so oh, grief stop it <laughs> it's it, 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 it's it's just a little bit frustrating on that on that part i would have liked a text crawl explaining the whole uh, galen urso was captured by the imperials and then became one of their scientists and was helping to build the death star because i think this is this is one of the things that i found difficult to engage with in the beginning bit was that you you kind of know too much about his motivation from straight off you know he's trying to defect immediately there's yeah. no question of there's, it. there's no doubt in it <clears throat> it would have been possibly more more interesting and more engaging for me and particularly if we'd had this earlier version of Jin who got to be more mouthy um, if basically the whole time she is very suspicious of of her father and we believe she has reason to be so mm. Rather than that opening scene where it's made abundantly clear that he's a good man, if you want to keep it ambiguous, it's actually imperative to the plot that he doesn't hide Jin to stop the Empire from taking her too, because that leaves you with that doubt, so that he, they have to have been separated in some other way. Also, since the only real, strong, dramatic relationship depicted in this film is between Jin and her father, it doesn't make any sense at all for <clears throat> for him not to be a main character in the, in the whole film. Like... Maybe a, um, a support character that she meets halfway through and then stays with until near the end. So Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. But definitely the whole working out daddy issues. I mean, it's a it's a Star Wars hallmark, but I don't think anyone's going to complain too much if they delve into a character's motivations and, and, and blame and recrimination and, and, and trying to make peace with that. I kind of want to see that movie, the version of... Uh, <laughs> We have, oh dear sweet mercy, Galen. Galen, thank you. I'm looking at the IMDb page and I just didn't see uh, Mads Mads Mickelson's page there. Um, it's yeah, easy to remember because it's the see... same name as uh, um, the the Jedi Apprentice in The Force Unleashed. I felt like that was a direct reference to that. It was like right, we're we're, we're now oh. patching that gap. So Galen Marek um, no longer exists, but we're gonna like kind of echo the ghost of the uh, Imperial Defector with Galen Ursa. Oh, interesting. Um, that's Sam Witwer, right? Yeah. But the uh, the movie with Galen being an absent father where we don't see the, his allegiance in the beginning would be really interesting. And I think that could add some gravity to 
the issue that the Rebel Alliance was having, which is we don't know if we can trust him. And if even someone like um, Jin is questioning that, maybe mm. not at first, maybe she's uh, her allegiance to her dad is really strong. But then there's some kind of moment that happens later on where she interacts with him and it seems too good to be true. It seems like something weird is happening that we just don't understand if we can trust this. Oh, yeah, here, give these plans to the Alliance and they can fix it. You know, if she has a little bit of a struggle there until something happens that really tweaks that trust, that tweaks that relationship and solidifies it and brings her some closure to, you know, why they've been separated for so long and all of a sudden, oh, man, I can't believe I didn't, you know, I didn't believe this from the beginning. We need, you know, and that's what solves the issue. Otherwise, why cast the shiftiest looking bugger in the world? Mm, yeah. uh, Mads if Mikkelsen. He's just going to be a good guy from, <laughs> from, from, from Jump off, Street. Like, yeah. you know, you, you know he's a good man the whole way through. It's, it's kind of. Tommy Wiseau gets told in The Disaster Artist, you're a villain. You have a malevolent quality about you. Mads Mikkelsen sent, spent the entirety of Hannibal um, with this look on his face that basically said, I know something you don't know. The whole time, it like, and, and so whenever he's interacting with um, Will, uh, there's this kind of, you know, well, he's he's Hannibal Lecter, he's a terrible, terrible cannibalistic murderer, but because he's Mad Mickelson and he's charming with it, you know, you, you, like no one suspects this obviously villainous-looking man who looks like Le Chiffre from. Uh, I was about to say, <laughs> he, he's, that, he's that villainous-looking. He was cast as a Bond villain, exactly, a very good Bond villain, an well. excellent. That's Bond why my wife still can't trust him. Yeah. So when he turns up in Clash of the Titans, you're like, oh, watch him, he's a shifty one. Oh, no, actually, he was a good guy the whole way through. It's it's weird. So in this, <clears throat> and there's another story I'm thinking of where a guy, you're just not sure of his allegiance the whole way through, and a young person is questioning his allegiance the whole way through. When the boy comes, it will not fail you, I'm sure. It answers to you. And you only. Does it? And that Joe Rowling managed to uh, stretch that out for seven books with Snape. Honestly, I think they could have done it for a whole film with Rogue One. Mm-hmm. The, the whole, is this guy really, like, you know, is, is, is he the trap? Is he the person baiting the rebels? Or is he their salvation? Yeah. And that ultimately, because you know that they get the plans in the end, what's at stake just needs to be a girl's faith in her father. You know, he still doesn't necessarily have to um, have access to the plans to give them or, you know, something still happens that means he dies before... Well, the idea is he's the one him. telling the rebels to all go there and it's yeah. do we trust him? And everyone points to Gale, uh, to Jin, who could have been a rebel for a while at this point, mm. and says, do you trust him? And she's, I haven't met him for years. I, 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 I want know. to trust him. Yeah. And she's the one vouching for him. It becomes a conflict between Jin's ideals and Jin's paranoia that way. Instead of what I'm describing here, when you actually sit down and watch Rogue One for the first time, the whole movie plays out, and you go, right, so the Rebels, this is the story of how the Rebels got the plans for the Death Star. Well, we know they got the plans, so what's at stake here? The Rebels... I hear that in Ron Howard's voice. This is the story of how the Rebels got the plans (laughs) for the Death Star. Now the story of a wealthy empire who lost everything, and the one rebel who had no choice but to blow up their Death Star. It's Rogue One. 
I was actually more thinking, gee, I wonder if Ron Howard's actually going to do any narration on Oh, God, he could! This is the story of the one smuggler who was trying to hold it together. (laughs) (laughs) That would be incredible. But that that kind of of more in-depth Jabba the Hutt has to be voiced by Julia um, Walter, Jessica Walter. And more (laughs) complex... Uh, trust issues I don't than, care than we got is something that I genuinely believe Felicity Jones could have pulled off well. She is a brilliant actress. Um, the the what she did with what she had in this, I thought was was good. It was well done. I know that sounds like a really mealy mouthed way of putting it, but again, it, it falls under the category of nobody in this had anywhere near enough to do. And I will say this: I really like Diego Luna. Cassian did not need to be in this film at all. He, he, is, a, he is a non-character. He <laughs> achieves nothing that couldn't have been done by somebody else, probably Jin. Um, I, I, lit, I got to the end of this watch and I was just sit, sat there thinking, I can't work out why he's there. Other than to have her not have to die alone, I can't work out why he's there. Well, it seems like he kind of inspires her. She's really upset about the fact that he that the rebels just killed her father in a bombing run. And he says, yeah, well, I've been doing this since I was six. And she goes, I'm suddenly inspired. I'm suddenly hopeful. And now we're encroaching inevitably on the things which are bad about this film. Because that's a big turn. This is not part of my essay, but a, a lot of people have pointed this out. She is jaded as hell. At the beginning of the film, she doesn't seem to believe in anything. She goes to see her one father figure, Saul Guerrera an insane terrorist who taught her to be paranoid. He has obviously let her down. He then dies. She goes to see her other father figure, Galen Erso, a weapons designer who has said, whatever I do, I do to protect you, and then helped a bunch of space Nazis build a superweapon that could nuke any planet that doesn't fall into line and potentially kill trillions to protect you. He has obviously let her down. He dies. She was already at one of her lowest points, clearly, and at this stage, she should be even lower. Jin and Cassian have a 93-second conversation, I counted, wherein she accuses him of lying to her and just following orders like a stormtrooper, and he shouts at her that he didn't actually pull the trigger, even though his friends did just perform a successful bombing run that did indeed kill her father. He says, suddenly the rebellion is real to you, but I've been fighting it since I was six years old. You're not the only one who's lost someone. Some of us just decided to do something about it. And that is apparently Jin's turning point. And boy, from this relationship, by the way, did we get a lot of music videos of clips from Rogue One of these two looking at each other while soft romantic music plays. I didn't get that, but, you know, whichever romantic couples you take your inspiration from. They go to a meeting with the rebels, who, remember, just murdered her father. And she is the only person in the the room able to give an inspirational speech. She's standing a foot away from Mon Mothma, and she's the one saying, rebellions are built on hope. And, like, all the other rebels are like, hey, the girl's right. But still, no. Here's... I I don't know if this is in any way anything to do with the original version of the script, but here's what I think that was reshoot for a start. Here's what I would really have liked to see here. She is is in her perception abandoned by her parents. Her mother gets killed. Her father gets taken by the Empire. 
Um, she gets taken in by Saw Gerrera and is brought up by him. He is incredibly dedicated to the rebel cause. Through him, she becomes incredibly dedicated to the rebel cause. He goes off the deep end. She realises he's gone too far. That's the point at which she becomes jaded with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And basically realises that... Um, that Rebels, Empire, they're been, basically the same. That, that Guerrera has maybe been ostracised by the, the, uh, the mainstream rebels because he's too extreme. So she cuts ties with him and disappears. Then she ends up in this situation where she's uh, being asked to liaise with him or even directly with her father because they're trying to get these plans out, but she doesn't know whether she can trust him because she hasn't had any contact with him for years. Um, And it's the, uh, the rebels that inspire her because ultimately she's cut herself off from the idea of this group can save what the empire is trying to destroy the the idea of um of uh, independent people coming together because they want to not because somebody with a blaster is making them um and making them all fight under this one banner that they don't necessarily want to um and her source of inspiration is mentioned in the war room leia yeah have if, if you don't want to bring Leia in in person, have Bail Organa give a bit more information about how his daughter has dedicated herself to this cause and have that be Jin's inspiration to go and do what she then needs to do. It still feels like she needs to be directly inspired by someone. We need to see it happening as opposed to hearing it from Jimmy Smith. Well, yeah. I'd, ideally, they would have had somebody actually playing Leia. It's actually weird as well because when Bail does mention his daughter, he doesn't call her his daughter, which I... How weird. Am I the only one I on trust that? her with my life. I trust her with my life. Can't say her <laughs> That's name. That's all he said. And then he looked at the camera and he winked. Wink. Yeah. You know who I'm talking about, am I right? We sure do. <laughs> <laughs> he looked uh, so happy to be there as well, didn't he, Bale? He's like, please, please don't send me home. I don't want to go home. <laughs> I know what happens. I read the next script. That's <laughs> yeah. okay. You need to get on your ship. Get on your ship. And like, Bale got is like, oh, no. <laughs> Are you sure nobody's starship needs a tune-up? Because I can stay. I'm, anyone remember that scene uh, from Friends where Joey gets written out of the, the, the TV show he's <laughs> That's in? what I was trying to think of. Do you want to get the lift? I, I've uh, seen uh, expressed a uh, an admirable um, statement, which is that a lot of people uh, in this day and age, you damn kids, review a film for what it isn't rather than for what it is. I admire the point, which is basically uh, what accounts to a hell of a lot of nitpicking, and I would have done it like this, I would have done it like that. However, the difficulty comes when you come up against a film that's so bereft, you haven't got much to say about it. Uh, It it then becomes, what is my service to? Is it my service to Rogue One, or is my service to storytelling in general? And on this show, our service is to crafting something better. So while it might sound like we're just nitpicking it at, at why you know Rogue One didn't measure up to scratch, it frustrates us when we see movies fail to capitalise on what they've been given the building blocks. You've got this wonderful universe and you've got a whole bunch of other films that have come and gone where they've made mistakes and they've had triumphant stories. And you can tell a different one here. And it certainly doesn't have to be. And I say this in my... I, I'm going to get on to... Let me just do my thing. Alex, do your thing. Do I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to do the best I can. My man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Funny just like a bat. I mentioned Justice League in this. Okay. I dig it. Okay. 
I have problems with Rogue One. It was released a year after The Force Awakens rocked my world, bringing back Star Wars better than ever, taking a more complex and emotional approach to character whilst retaining the simple setups that made A New Hope such a winner. That's why the whole, it's just a remake of A New Hope, doesn't fly with me. It has similarities, it follows similar patterns, but it's considerably more complex. I expected Rogue One to be more like a war film, a Saving Private Ryan. I definitely did not expect it to be like the regular episodes. So this is not me going in with massive expectations for it to be just like The Force Awakens. What we got has the superficial form of a war film, but none of the finesse or heart of the Spielberg example. Everyone seems to cite Saving Private Ryan like there were no other war films ever made, but... um, but yeah, the, the, the fact that it shares the same, you know, they all get wiped out sensibility. It is painfully lacking in character development or even simple revealing conversations that aren't about the plot. We only know about each person on screen what they are told about themselves in, as you know, expositionary tracts by other bland characters. Its self-contained nature and insistence on slaughtering every new character it introduces effectively means that watching the film feels like Gareth Edwards and then Tony Gilroy lining up nine new action figures one by one besides your existing collection of Star Wars guys and then violently sweeping them off the table. Each protagonist and antagonist and support avatar has precisely as much depth and texture as their plastic counterparts. My biggest bugbears are Tarkin and Leia. That kind of facial remapping effect is best left in commercials, where they're trying to convince you that James Dean is driving a car, or Audrey Hepburn is in the back of a taxi, or Elvis is leaving the building. They are toys. They are curios designed to prod at our wistful memories, and they will always, without fail, teeter into the uncanny valley. There will never be a place for them in drama that would not be better filled by a contemporary actor performing as the deceased, or the aged actor in the case of Leia. Our brains have mechanisms in them that tell us when something is wrong with someone's face, and that's what we have to wrestle with whenever they are on screen, like a yipping Jack Russell Terrier jumping up at us when we're on the phone. Not many people know this, but the plan back in the late 90s while Alec Guinness was still alive was to coax him back to the studios for voiceover work and have a body double wear his young face. If you imagine that with 1999 computer graphics, the, the kind of imagery that they exercised in the Star Wars special editions. Imagine how much like Final Fantasy The Spirits Within that would have looked like standing next to a flesh and blood Liam Neeson. How it would Thank have... God for you, in. <laughs> Thank God. How it would have ruined Phantom Menace before every other broken and misjudged element had a chance to. The actor method, however, is not foolproof. Brandon Routh's Christopher Reeve impersonation got in the way of him establishing himself as the Superman for the 2000s. But at least we aren't remembering the 2006 attempt at pasting a Christopher Reeve face over his that would be all you would remember of Superman Returns. It is detrimental to filmmaking to attempt a digital stunt like this whilst asking the audience to both acknowledge and ignore it simultaneously. It works best in comedies and fan service. I could see a Christopher Reeve, Linda Carter, Adam West, John Wesley Shipp, Justice League, pitched by Bob Chipman, turning up in a Flashpoint movie provided that they don't speak much and all we are effectively being asked to accept is a beautiful moving image of something that could have been. 
Tarkin here is a dramatic character and opposition to another flesh-and-blood character, Krennic. His polygonal Cushing face headbutts every moment of his screen time. Side note, by the way, I know some people who didn't notice that he was digital, and some people were like, I thought he was dead. So clearly this is not for everyone. It's for me, but for some people, it's good enough. By some people, by the way, I will admit at this point, he means me. I sat there in the cinema for quite a while going, um, I thought he was dead. Is that CG? Is that somebody with a really good mask? But whichever way you slice it, you were distracted by it. The trouble is this time round, I knew what to look for and it stands out like a sore thumb. So I'm kind yeah, of with the likes you now. know, it definitely is. It's really obvious. And the digital layer in the final shot steps on the entire movie, especially due to the tragically too soon death of real-life Hollywood wise woman Carrie Fisher, which occurred while Rogue One was still in theatres. You cannot scrub the real layer from your head, and the idea of being asked to accept this digital double straight out of Battlefront in one Star Wars anthology movie, and then by the next one, Han Solo, suddenly we have what by all accounts looks like a great new interpretation of young Han and Lando, and when, not if, that movie is successful, I can guarantee further Star Wars movies with younger versions of beloved characters played by contemporary actors. Thus there is a disparity in overall creative focus here. It makes Leia and Tarkin's moments reek of because-we-could arrogance. As always, I'm with Ian Malcolm. Yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. The same goes for removing moustaches and replacing them with creepy stick-on mouths, or massive bug eyes slapped onto a cyborg girl. It seems simple... But it's not something movie makers consider gospel. The less you digitally fuck with an actor's face, the more people can engage with them. You can get away with some of their body for key effects, but not the whole body below the head, Green Lantern. The issue I'm fully aware of here is how the hell can we push technology forward with a cold feet attitude to this concept? And I'm a futurist, so this goes against almost everything I'm for. But it's true, techno-evolution requires the budget of big IPs to develop. You can't do this with a small, underfunded project. Not like something Neil Blomkamp could throw together on a shoestring. Not when a moustache shave costs $25 million. I believe the answer lies in video games, because they provide a context of entirely digital body masks for actors against an entirely digital background. Uncharted 4 looks amazing in a way that Tarkin never can. Studios like Naughty Dog and Ninja Theory are training people able to capture human nuance in an environment where the discipline lends strength rather than detracting. Within 10 years, their output could not only be flawless, but flawed enough to seem real. So, for example, Rogue One, so, for example, Battlefront, like I said, that Leia looks like she's at a Battlefront, looks fantastic, but they aren't, like, when they start talking, that's when the disconnect happens, because that's not Princess Leia. But as I said to you about it being an animation, it's context. When it's surrounded by other similarly animated characters and an animated background, it fits, it makes sense. When it's in a real scene with real people, that's when it feels off. Or if it was an ape, and I've made this argument before, in fact I think we did it a couple of weeks ago with Justice League, if it was an ape you'd go, well that's an ape and those are people. If it's a person you go, well those are people, that's not a person. You know what you never see though in the Planet of the Apes movies? CGI men. CG apes next to real apes. Yeah. 
Yeah. There are some scenes with real apes in them, and there are some scenes with CG apes in them. They don't put them together. <laughs> that ape's showing me up. I'm getting stage fright. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of weird, because I think sometimes the answer to this would be a little bit simpler, but would also be kind of obvious as well. It's Which just is. to obfuscate. So instead of talking actually being in the room with... Uh, with I was going to say Mendelssohn, that's wrong. Um, instead of being in the room with why is he not just on a video com or something you could use because then you could use like distortion on clt or something just to slightly hide or offset certain aspects because it's this has been done before but maybe not to this extent but cast your minds back to the crow yeah where brandon lee died and they used a lot of digital manipulation and body doubles and stuff to oh hey Fast and Furious 7 lest we forget Paul Walker that was excellent excellent work and they weren't doing it to be flashy they only did it when they absolutely had to Mm. because a lot of those scenes you you do wonder are they necessary is that that layer scene at the end is not necessary Mm. you could just see the tantive booking it and go right yeah I know where this goes you could just simply rearrange the shot so that you uh, he walks into the room and you see her from behind uh, as you did the original shot and then uh, he passes her the thing and you see her hold it up and you can see a woman's face turn and look at it and it's Leia's profile you could even just like just have a girl who looks really like Carrie Fisher and then um, like, you're just you're just far enough away in the shot, and she's still shrouded in half in shadow. And he says, you know, "But the, the, there's the whiteness there, so you've got like that right there, her the shadow is, and the white." Her costume is so iconic. You put anybody yep. in that, and they know it's meant to be yeah. there. And she says, "Hope again." You could have just done it in Carrie Fisher's voice. That's fine, as long as we don't have to see a digitally mapped set of lips doing that. Like that. That's a sort of a wonderful, respectful way of including Leia in this story. If you aren't yet going to uh, cast a new actress, because think about it, like if you haven't got a Princess Leia movie planned, there's no point having a, a 19-year-old girl now who's going to be 26 when you finally get Princess Leia off the ground and she actually starts to look too old. But yeah, no one's going to kick up a fuss if you have a young actress playing Carrie Fisher's previous role of Princess Leia. They'll just be really satisfied with her inclusion. I do actually like the idea you're pitching there for, for, for the replacing layer. The trouble comes with talking. Talking is very much more integral into into the story that they're trying to tell here and, and in his relationship with Krennic, uh, which... So it's, how do you fix that? Like I said, maybe the t- you know the, him vidconning or whatever, you, you know, in is one way of doing it. It's obvious I don't know how you fix that problem other than, yeah, let's just cast someone in that role Guy Henry is the guy who played Tarkin uh, do you remember Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows yeah um, he was Pious Thickness the politician they had at the ministry uh, when uh, oh Voldemort goodness, asked him right. um, you know what news do you have of the boy Pious and Pious says one hears many things my lord whether the truth is among them is not clear. And it's like, brilliant, you've just said nothing at all. So uh, um, Voldemort goes, how very like a politician. But thing is, I, I saw him in his Tarkin uniform with dots on his face and went, you know what, with just like, you know, do his hair, he's Tarkin. Everyone you know would go, that's Tarkin, straight away, no problem. No one's going to go, put a digital face on that guy. He's not Tarkin. No one called for that. I can't believe this has just occurred to me. Doctor Who has because because you mentioned harry potter doctor who has cast um i cannot remember the actor's name he played finch yep finch he's, i know what you're talking about oh yeah he was one of the death eaters as well actually he was caro he's playing the first doctor he's not even the first actor 
to replace um, William Hartnell. It was done uh, before as well. So recasting does work because if you do it right and get if you get the look right enough, people just go like you just said, talking in the Star Wars universe. There's established history in the Star Wars not universe, but in the Star Wars production universe you of casting a new actor. Yeah, Ewan. Ewan is a, is Obi Wan. He's Baby Wan. Like he's little <laughs> Obi. Like go for it. We've done it before. To Let's Baby Wan, you Maybe. listen. <laughs> Baby Wan Kenobi. So maybe I think you're right. I think a lot of the of the the basis for making Tarkin a CG character was had a lot to do with the well we can we can do this kind of an attitude which you're right is the wrong attitude of trying to trying to build a a, a moment where you keep the audience engaged. Hmm. Uh, it's cool technology. For the Tarkin, they did a good enough job that it didn't super upset me personally, but I still see that it's a CG character. It's not convincing like Gollum was, because mm. Gollum is a cartoonified a you know, being. Yeah. Yeah. But they have an example in the Star Wars universe. Ewan McGregor is baby Obi-Wan. Yeah. They could have done it here, too. No. Maybe the other issue was because they wanted Tarkin to be about the same age. Yeah, well, you age him up. That's that's not a that's not a reason <laughs> yeah. to spend what must have been, let's face it, a lot more than twenty five million dollars to remove a moustache mm. to give this but, guy a cushing face. But yeah, and we've we've talked about this before on the Lord of the Rings shows the idea that um, that the reason that humans are so difficult to do in CG form without falling straight down the uncanny valley is that our brains are uniquely designed mm. to identify humans. Yeah. Like uh, I, we, when we see someone with an odd face, that's part of our DNA going. Run away from him! Run away from him! He's from a bad tribe, and he'll try and cut your head off and eat you. But uh, you know, if, if Guy Henry had played Tarkin, it would have been like we're setting this guy up. You got you guys want to see Tarkin sometime later on, and everyone be like, yeah, he was. Pretty, it was a really good version of uh, Tarkin. Thank you. Whereas now we'll be like, you want to see CGI Tarkin again? No, God, no. No one, no one's asking for that. <laughs> It, it, it just it smacks so much of stuntery, and like you know, you can look at Gollum and go, "Well, that that's a Gollum," because there is only one example of Gollum that's Whatever not. Whatever the... they did, it would have been right it's because the nobody Gollum. knows what Gollum looks like. <laughs> As for Rogue One itself, the music is fine, the effects are fine, the script is perfunctory and uninspiring. The casting is fine, the performances for what the actors have been handed are better than they could have been. This is baseline Star Wars. It does the bare minimum to constitute a film, more concerned with the events than what that means to those involved with them. That's what I meant about making it about what Jin feels about her father. Yeah, as it stands, these events could be carried out by almost anybody. The TS2 could pretty much have done the whole thing. Oh yeah, about a bunch of Athens. It's not stupid and broken and ham-fisted, so it's better than Lucas's prequel trilogy, but it's nowhere near the equal of the original trilogy or The Force Awakens. Like Justice League and Suicide Squad, this project underwent extensive reshoots and a change of director and or editor after the first cut was made. While not being anywhere near as messy as either of those two, it has similarities with Justice League in particular in that the reshoot material and the reshaping doesn't necessarily gel with what was there originally. So like Justice League, it seems like there might have been more that was originally present, though not nearly as much, and pairing it away left many characters with only the bare minimum of development. So it might have been that there was character development there, but they removed it because it fit with the old version of the movie, and they 
didn't film anything to put in its place to recharacterize them in a different way. And they may have rationalized that the film was already over long, so they didn't have time for characterization. But so much of that length was sound and fury. And that doesn't make a story. And again, that word that springs to mind when I think of Rogue One, same as I did with Justice League, is simply empty. To go back to your analogy about war films, um, the way I always got the feeling about this, I thought it was going to be the Dirty Dozen in space, mm. which would make perfect sense to, because that's that's almost the feel it's, it's trying to go for. Mm. But again, the rumour mill was that, um, that, that his original, uh, the original... Gareth Edwards' original take was much darker and they didn't want it to be that dark. Which is weird, because I thought the whole point of these sort of standalones that they were doing was to expand its universe, but but to do different things with the Star Wars things. Uh, but then again, we could run into um, a situation where we have the Marvel problem. So, tonally, the Marvel movies are very much a certain way and a certain look. But then you get the Marvel Netflix stuff, and you can't. Mm. They don't seem to be in the same universe, even though they try and reference things. Mm. They're they so totally different. They're yeah. so much darker and nastier for a lot of it um, that you can't believe this doesn't seem to be a middle ground. And maybe that's a problem that this being the first film in this sort of hey, we're going to tell you other stories ran into as well. It's like you got the director wanting it to be one thing probably Kathleen Kennedy wanting it to be another because let's face it up in, uh, aside from the episodes and even then they had some trouble uh, they have had issues with their directors of these standalone stories we had Colin, uh, was it Colin Trevorrow? He Colin Trevorrow was going to be on uh, oh no, he was going to be on episode um, nine. 9 and now he's gone and JJ it was uh, the guy that did uh, Fan 4 stick wasn't it he was going to be doing one. Oh, seriously he, Josh Trank Josh Yes, he Jesus. left. Uh, and the uh, um, Lord and Miller were going to, doing the Han Solo thing, and they were re- recruited because they had done 21 Jump Street, and it was like, what? They've made it like 21 Jump Street? Get rid of them! That's not what we wanted at all! Yeah. So it's. It, it, I wonder if this film had the problem of you had a director has a certain way and wants to do a certain thing and had a, probably a, a, a good idea for a story, mm. but once it was set into motion, it didn't jive with someone... I'm, go to say Kathleen Kennelly again because she seems to be the name that's mentioned all the time um, might not have jived with the overall idea and uh, how they want their Star Wars universe supposed to be yes we want to tell these other stories but we don't want it to be you know that dark we don't want a new mutant set if you want a mm. weird and reference that that may possibly be a reason why um, there's a lot less doing and a lot more telling in this um, in terms of getting across who the characters are and what they've been up to in the time that we don't see them, uh, but this is this is something that I struggled with with this, and I'm I'm willing to bet that there are people out there who say, "What are you talking about?" They are characterised. They they have big long conversations about how they are and who they are and things that they've done, but that's not characterisation. I'm going to give you an example here. Uh, Jin says to Saw, "You abandoned me." Right? We never see that happen. We never see what led up to it. We literally, all we see of their relationship is him finding her in the bunker. And then the next time we see them, she's she's angry with him for abandoning her, mm. right? That doesn't give me any level of engagement or any point of connection. She's just saying, you abandoned me, which means nothing. It feels like there could have been a flashback. They actually shot scenes when he had no hair. Yeah, so. I'd, I'd have been happy with that. Compare that to James McAvoy's You Abandoned Me 
in Days of Future Past hmm. to Michael Fassbender. Now, admittedly, the You've way You've already seen a whole movie of them, two yeah, of them together. Admittedly, that's delivered in a very different way, and it's a very uh, emotionally impactful performance on McAvoy's part. But the main reason why that has such impact is because, yeah, we know he abandoned him. We saw it happen. Yeah. And I, I, I sort can't, of set up payoff. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what it would have been like if I'd just come into Days of Future Past having not seen First Class, but I don't know why I would have done that. My prediction for this movie originally was, no, I didn't, I, I didn't pick up on the war movie vibe just because it's not a genre that I, I spend any time in, uh, as far as fandom goes. <laughs> can you have fandom for a war movie? I bet you can. Oh yeah, there are oh, people yeah. who um, collect plates and memorabilia. Yes, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But I, I was yeah, I was expecting. The thin red line. There you go. <laughs> I was expecting Ocean's Eleven in Star Wars. I was expecting Whoa. a heist movie. Um, but that's not. I'm so flexible and like lighthearted about anything Star Wars wise. I'm a very lighthearted person as far as my entertainment expectations go. I feel like, and this is going to discredit everything that I say about everything, but all of my favorite TV shows right now are on the CW network. Because I love The Flash, yeah, and I really am enjoying Supergirl, and, um, well, maybe just the that? superhero genre. My my interest in this movie, and I still like the movie quite a bit, I, I'm being critical because it's important to be critical of the things that you enjoy, you're allowed to be. And Alex, you've said that on many occasions, on many episodes of this podcast, hmm. where we're not ripping on it because we feel like we're cooler because we can rip on it. We're we're digging in here because we want we want to see the things that we love you know, developed and explore, explored a little bit more. Not um, questioning something that you love doesn't mean that you love it more. Yeah, absolutely. But the, um, <laughs> and I still want to see a heist movie in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, me too. You can do Han anything Solo. in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> I'm so worried about that movie, just with all the director yeah, stuff that's flapping around. I'm, I, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I have faith in Ron Howard. I think if, if anything, it'll be another one where you go, that was perfectly fine. That you know, I think if that's the worst we get, that's probably the worst we will say about it. It was perfectly fine. Thank you, Neil. Instead- I have faith in you too, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> buddy. But instead of instead of a heist movie, instead of uh, a more direct war movie, what I kind of feel like we have is um, like a role playing game where mm. someone ran Star Wars D and D basically. Mm. Because what Star Wars RPG group hasn't either run or thought of running? How did the Death Star plans get into? the Rebel Alliance's hands. This is such a tried-and-true story that so many people in the role-playing community have an answer for um, that a lot of it kind of feels that way. In fact, the lack of depth in quite a few of these characters, uh, as far as that development goes, is there to me, and it feels like someone's recanting how they ended up stealing the Death Star plans. Oh, and they just picked up their character sheets and they're like, right, so I'm this guy's friend and I have a gun on my back. Anything else? I made this guy Cassian Andor and I'm really cool and I'm kind of shady because I'm I'm a spy. I have have three portions of provisions and a rope. I don't know if that's going to come in useful, but (laughs) I have it. Wait, I'm the blind... Why did I get the blind monk again? Oh, no, no, but you're a kick-ass fighter. Look at your, like, plus seven fighting. I bought our GM a pizza, so I get a droid to help me that I oh, reprogrammed nice. from the Empire. Do, you know, so I'll, do I get a lightsaber? Because I heard my mom was a Jedi. 
<laughs> True story, by the way. Originally, uh, Lyra, uh, that, and they even hint at this in what she's wearing, was a Jedi in hiding. That little crystal she gives to uh, Jin was a lightsaber crystal. And it is. It, it is when she was never a Jedi. They got rid of the whole idea of that because they didn't want audiences to think. But does Jin Erso have force sensitive powers? Mary Sue, Mary Sue, Mary Sue. Yeah. They, just so they would scream that over and over again. God. So um, there is a race of people in Star Wars uh, that is. I think they're they're human adjacent. They're like either they're human or they're really close to human, who have this ability to kind of imprint. Um, thoughts and ideas and feelings and emotions into some some kind of stoneware. This is a, like a Legends thing. It was like somebody related to Boba Fett in one of the Karen Travis novels had this ability and yeah, some people are really hot or really cold about Karen Travis novels but I was wondering if maybe Jin's mom was one of these kind of people hmm. who had this kind of uh, the ability to kind of imprint um, kind of a legacy almost into a stone like that and, and that's why she passed it off to Jin. Oh. but i don't know well, i don't know it's not well, unfortunately it's not so like i said i read catalyst which is the prequel novel to this which basically is just galen lyra and krennic's backstory huh yeah it's actually slightly more interesting but it's 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 probably as interesting as you think that sounds yeah yeah bear in mind the script for this was uh, written as well as by tony gilroy by chris white's now if you folks have listened to our golden compass episode you'll remember that me and sharon have kind of an axe to grind regarding how immeasurably bland chris white's is mm-hmm. as a writer and in the case of the golden compass as a director um He's not the worst in the world by any means. He's not going to make... He's not Yeah, he's not... I mean, Goya did Batman Begins, so, like, Goya's done something incredible. Well, it's really good. Um, But he also did Blade Trinity, and he also did Spirits of Vengeance, that Ghost Rider sequel. See, I was just going to say of Chris White, the man's like chicken and rice. Yeah. You you want him around when your stomach's so messed up. Boiled chicken and rice. Boiled chicken and rice, exactly, yeah. To calm you down after a spell of of stomach flu or something. But, I mean, he's not like (laughs) Skip Woods or... um, uh, Aaron Kruger. He's not like really genuinely troubling of a writer, like diseased. Like if he, if like if Aaron Kruger's version of Dumbo actually gets made, I'm gonna puke elephants. Seriously. Aaron, why do I know that name? A writer of Transformers two <laughs> and three and four. Can you get that on video? I want to see it. <laughs> puke <in> elephants. <laughs> I knew I knew that name. And oh. I hope Aaron Kruger never hears this because you're giving him ideas. Oh, good idea. <laughs> So, um, yeah, now, now Skip Woods is the guy who wrote Swordfish, so yeah, he's, he's a horrible Ooh. man. Um, so, <laughs> at the beginning when we meet Cassian, this is just a little thing, again, it's something Jenny pointed out, but um, th- he kills that poor guy in that, like, well, I've got to escape and you'll slow my escape and you'll also tell them everything and if you tell them everything, we'll be lost, so I'm a desperate man, I have to protect the rebellion, and he says, you know, we're going to be alright, and then he kills him. At the moment that he feels like things might be all right, it's a, it's it's almost a, a sweet, merciful killing. But he still kills him in that kind of this guy's desperate. He's a badass. He will do what it takes. And as Jenny pointed out, that's that's not necessarily establishing him as a badass. That's him doing one thing that's out of character with Cassian through the rest of the movie, which is not doing that at all. If you want to look at it like an arc. He kills a poor defenseless man to protect rebel information and then doesn't kill the man who created the Death Star even though he's been ordered to by rebels. 
there's your arc. He's just kind of supportive and grave the whole time. Mm. And it, it feels like they had... Like, when you watch the extras on Rogue One, everyone involved is talking it up a storm. They're going, oh, it's great, we've got all this great history. And, you know, like, when you find out all about the Journal of the Wills and, like, we're the guardians of that. And, and you know, I think you kind of get that from my character. And they're all talking about how excited they are to be working on this. But they're talking about character flavour that's just kind of there. Not there. It, it, what is it? it it's... There, if you watch the extras, <laughs> and the actors there tell you the about it. Yeah, yeah, it's what they wrote on the back of their character sheets and gave to the GM nice. before the game. Yeah. And I, again, I don't want this to be a beatdown on Rogue One. I know that it made a lot of people happy. I still and, love it. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. There's an, another bit that bugs the hell out of me. Poor Gullet. Poor Gullet. Poor, poor Gullet. Poor Gullet. Well, no other truth. The unfortunate side effect. Is that one tends to lose one's mind? <laughs> Neil, was there more of that in the book? No. Like, I need to know Paul Gallup's backstory. Paul Gallup begins. No, the, no this is, it's more you actually... Because one of the better things about the book is you, you, you definitely dives into the characters more and you, you experience what the Paul Gallup does to Brody. And Which how it's what? pulling all these—it's pulling all these things. It's literally pulling all these memories from his mind okay. and slowly sources. The way he describes it is like it's pulling photographs out and then tearing them up and discarding them until it finds what it's looking for. So essentially, it mind rapes him. Oh, what's, what's with those the, tentacles. Let's say mind rake with that? a K, this and then it'll the, be cleaner. This is the <laughs> difficulty that I have with this bit. Why? What does that achieve? It uh, is it trying to tell us that Saw is a terrible person? Which, if it is, then why are we expected to uh, engage with Jin's um, relationship with him later on? Is it trying to tell us that there is a question over whether or not Bodhi is genuine in his defection? Which is pointless because we know it is. <laughs> And also because his his acting immediately, like, Saw seems like a crackpot and Bodhi seems like just a normal guy going, uh, can what you, like, just, could you just not torture <laughs> me and then we'll carry on? change my mind about this defection business? I'll go back, Strangely, I'll go back. Strangely enough, that's a massive thread for him in the book. Oh, cool. <laughs> is it? Yeah. It would have been nice to see some of that in the film. But the other thing is how exotic Paul Guller is. Ultimately, like they're going, this ain't your mama's Star Wars, you know? Like this, this guy's a terrorist, and then like yeah, he's going to interrogate Bodhi. Cut then to a scene where Doctor Ball is injecting Bodhi with like just a, a really basic version of that droid injecting Bodhi. It's like we cut away before that, but this is the real. That this is actually what happened, and like be be really unpleasant and mechanical. But you feel like this is kind of part of what you didn't see in previous Star Wars. But no, he's got something out of Return of the Jedi. Like wrap your tentacles around him. Yes. Wrath <laughs> <laughs> like of Khan mind slug. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I get the feeling that they were going for with with, with him was the fact that he was. As much as he was fighting the Emperor, if you look at him, he was meant to be slowly becoming the thing he hated because he's he's doing what they do. Mm. He's torturing people. And yeah. let's face it, Saul... I keep saying Sal, it's Saul. Saul. Saul Guerrero, by this point, is, you could say, more machine than man now. He's mm. more machine. There's a, yeah. there's a straightforward Vader parallel. I will say, after all of the poor gullet bitching... I actually really liked. I liked it the first time I saw it. I like it now. Forrest Whitaker's super intense performance. Just like when he's looking at Bodhi and he goes, and like he's glaring at him, and he's just like he won't take his eyes away, and he like t- like takes a long draft, 
and then thinks, and then like whips the breath mask down so that it's back in its place and goes, poor gullet! And like, he's like, he's terrifying. And he's so like, you know, like, it's, he's, he's scenery cheering, but not really in a fun way. Like, you, you get that, like, that, that Forrest Whitaker is taking this 110% seriously. He's doing like a Daniel Day Lewis thing with this guy. Mm. And then, <laughs> After this fantastic incandescent performance of like that bit when he goes, like like he's talking to Jin, and then this oh, slow geez. realization dawns, and he goes, "You come to kill me," and then like his face changes, and it's like this really like sad, tender, conflicted moment. There's not much of me left. That's a great moment. And then he goes, oh, they're blowing up the planet. Guess I'll stand here then. I've filled out my uses. Take the guy. But you see, even the pilot isn't useful because the only useful thing was the bloody hologram. So basically, she just goes, save the empire. Sorry, save the rebellion, save the dream. She just goes to pick up a hologram. Like, all of the problems in this movie suck because the file size is four terabytes, which makes it difficult to attach as an email. Mm. Yes. Um, do you know who he reminds me of, though? Grievous. Yeah. Yes. A, better, a better version of Gre- yeah. Grievous. Yeah. <laughs> Take them to the orphanage. And the fact that there's so much um, that, that was kind of written into Grievous's character mm. that you don't know a damn thing about yeah. unless you've seen uh, The Clone Wars. Yeah, because all of that... You know what in- we need? We need, a to- we need a coughing robot. That's what we need in this movie. <laughs> You're so sick of it. That's brilliant. <laughs> Another oh. thing I really liked, when that guy was getting his knob out over uh, Vader, I was marveling at the fact that um, his castle, which has been talked about since like the very beginning, like um, Vader's castle was in early script drafts. It was definitely in Return of the Jedi was originally going to be on, on that lava planet and the, the Empire Emperor's palace was going to be there. It wasn't on the Death Star 2. They wrote that in later. Um, but Vader lives on Mustafar. Why? Why would you live on Mustafar? Okay. Exactly. One, it's a source of his anger, or there's meant to be a Sith temple there as well. I've heard that one. Mm. That his his castle is built above a Sith temple. I'd say it's first one, then the other. Like, you know, he's like, well, I'll I'll stay here because apparently it's good for Sith energies. But really, every time I look at that hot lava, I just think how much I want to fucking kill someone. The weird thing is, though, throughout this film, it likes to tell us where we are. Until we go to Vader's castle. Does it not say Mustafar? It does not say Mustafar in the film. damn it. It says it in the book. I think they've said it outright in interviews. But if you look, you you get the pop-up of, you know, this is Jeddah and this is the the rings of such a thing. And Oh, wow. It does not say... Mustafa. Maybe they didn't want people That's probably just to protect Vader from visitors. No, they... (laughs) Nice. Um... They didn't want the tour buses coming round. Uh, no, they they uh, they probably didn't want people going. Ugh, Mustafa. I'm thinking of the prequels now. It's a good point. Yeah. I, I also noticed his castle was on the high ground. Nice. <laughs> Who has the high Don't ground try. now, Obi Wan? <laughs> yeah. Baby one. And also, when he turns up and that door opens and it goes and you just see the silhouette like completely engulfing Krennic that's the best Vader entrance ever it's really good and yeah I've got to give him the, the, the movie it's props there that that's like visually speaking that's a great entrance even okay, though so he we- then turns around and goes be careful not to choke on your ambitions 
Dad jokes? Seriously? Yes. <laughs> I now do puns. It's a small part of Sith lore that you have to be really good at puns. Oh, I'm afraid your rebel friends are barely holding out. You see, they're being helped by bears on the moon of Endor. It's, it's, it's a pun. I'll be here all week. Although I would say, was I the one that you could feel the age in James Earl Jones's voice oh, yeah. in this one? Yeah. If, it was, like, if I, voices move faster, that's going to be quite difficult to listen to because uh, he was eighty-four 20... when he recorded it. Yeah, jeez. And you know, I'm going to say like you know, preemptively, R.I.P.D. Uh, by the time you guys listening to this in the future know that James L. Jones has now passed on, and is that genuine Force Ghost in the clouds going? This is CNN. Um, that my God, we will miss him because okay. just one of the best voices ever. I, 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 if you ever want a powerful James Earl Jones moment, go on YouTube. There's a clip of uh, him performing in a play called Fences, hmm. uh, and it is incredibly a power. Like just, an, I'm going to stop using uh, those words that you love so much, Alex. It is a stirring and moving performance, uh, and just a few minutes of it uh, as a conversation between a father and his son about whether about the son asking why this dad never liked him, and James nails it there was a uh, um, when I was uh, uh, researching Frederick Douglass for getting uh, I had to put a speech together that would have been something like something Frederick Douglass would have written and trying to get how he would have said it I went straight to James Earl Jones reading Frederick Douglass there is an interesting link there because Saul Guerrero's hair, they didn't say it out explicitly on the extras, but it's clearly oh. modeled on Frederick Douglass's. It's got this kind of big, like, up crazy, like, younger Frederick Douglass, not the, the older Doc Brown looking one. But they did the same thing with Samuel L. Jackson in um, Unbreakable. Just to show this is a very determined, very fierce man. The one thing I, the thing I like about the video, and it's just one of these small details, the eye lenses were red. Yeah. Yes, they were. Nice callback. This is nice. Oh, uh, mind a little detail, but I, it, sometimes it's those little details that I like. Yeah. I, I forgot to mention there was one Borgullet thing um, that Borgullet. we skipped over. <laughs> Never um, skip Borgullet. He will eat you. Borgullet. We'll know. <laughs> <laughs> that's the and meme that's... people are taking away now. That, that's why he's a voice actor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> the um, the madness or the brain loss or memory loss or whatever it is that comes from Borgullet had no consequences in this film, even though you've got Forrest Whitaker putting all of his acting energy into that moment. It's like one tends to lose their mind kind of a moment. And then the the consequence was gone the moment the script decided, no, nah, we don't need that anymore. We're yep, good. Wake absolutely. up, Bodie. Come on. Yeah, like I said, that, that that scene didn't have to happen, and not with that severity. Ultimately, I would have been fine with just uh, uh, Dr. Ball coming out with truth serum. It's Star Wars enough for us to go, oh, I remember that. But then if they hold on it, rather than, like, cutting away, you're like, oh, God, poor Bodhi. Like, you know, Plus, if I mean, using... we've got that Han scream from the originals. Like, yeah. he was... He was screaming his heart out. Mm. Sorry, Sharon. I... And if no, no, that's fine. Um, if you're using Doctor Ball, then you've got that emphasis on Saw Gerrera becoming mm. his. Just enemy. like the Emperor Empire. Mm. Yeah, you wouldn't imagine Darth Vader going, 
Borgellet will find it out. <laughs> Bring me a droid. I can't work with this tentacly thing. <laughs> it's all tentacles. It reminds me of that time I fell into that nest of gundarks. Remember that, everyone? Oh, yes. That was very funny. <laughs> why, is your, why is your first ghost hunting me? I'm the bad guy. Oh, speaking of, yeah, recasting, lest we forget, Anakin Skywalker, the, the, the younger, uh, Hayden Christensen, replacing Sebastian Shaw as a force ghost at the end. It's been done, folks. Not necessarily to everyone's happiness, but I don't, I really don't think anyone would have gone, how dare you put a new actor in playing Tarkin? Bring Peter Cushing back from the dead or nothing. Well, I'm guessing that wasn't David Proust in the armor. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead no, and say, yeah. No, it was not. Uh, and it probably wasn't Hayden Christensen either. It was, um, oh, it was either Spencer Wilding or Daniel Napros, according to IMDb. Uh, they're both listed as Darth Vader, as is Mr. Jones. I got a feeling we're going to be seeing at least one of them later on in uh, in future Darth Vader's. That guy's not going anywhere. He's He'll be back. See, my biggest kick in the seat from Force Awakens was they were going to do that, that the, the Force Ghost of Anakin Vader. I so want to see that on screen because the idea they had was so interesting. It was was yeah. such a cookies that I, I caught myself. I like challenging you. I do. <laughs> it, it, I, I, what kind of idea visual, was it? The visual design of of it starting out a, as Anakin and slowly turning into Ooh. Vader was. Well, I like I, just the idea. It, the visual I have in my head just sounds really, really, really slightly creepy and would be so much fun. But I'm guessing that we'll probably not see that. Yeah. Also, I guess it kind of mucks up the ending of Jedi when you see, well, depending on which one we watch, you, you see a, a Anakin there, and he is Anakin, not mm. not Vader. Okay, let's future-proof this one. Well, thank God we did actually finally get to see that in The Last Jedi. <sighs> well, it certainly wasn't in The Last Jedi, <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> there you go. Future-proofing it. <laughs> Um, Neil. Spencer Wilding is six foot six and a half, by the way. 1.99 meters. 1.99 meters! It's almost as big as the uh, exhaust port on the Death Star. So you could conceivably shove him sideways down that exhaust port. The <laughs> Neil, did you recognize that planet shield when they get to Scarif at last? <laughs> is it now time for the official obligatory Spaceballs reference? Exactly. It is literally Spaceballs. A big ship wants to come in, but it can't because the planet shield's there. Get Dick Van Patten to open those doors. I know the code. One, two, three, four, five. <laughs> that's Which, what I've got on my luggage. By the way, Dude. that's Tommy Wiseau's code for getting into his house, and he had it written down. <laughs> I got that from the Disaster Artist book, folks. I recommend you read it. I'm saving your episode on The Room because I'm I'm going to be watching it soon. I okay. can't wait to hear what you guys have gone over about it. It's one of our best. You'll love it's, it. It's quite exhaustive. Yes. Um, I, I, just, I just thought of another positive thing. It technically definitely puts Rebels into canon. Yeah, there's two Rebels references in there, and that actually kind of opens up to something more interesting. But uh, go for it, Neil. So there is a interestingly that uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just spank yourself. I'm slapping my hand. You there. should do it again. <laughs> that <laughs> genuinely <laughs> sounded like you'd punched yourself in the head. Interesting. I was say, Bang. Neil, that is not necessary. <laughs> that sound was quite interesting. <laughs> Punch yourself, damn it! <laughs> Ow. Oh dear. I think, I think it's when they get 
when he, you know, I think I'm trying to remember. I know it's a the first time uh, with Jin and and, uh, and uh, Cassian get back to heaven four in the wide shot. The ghost is there yep. on the left hand side. Yep. Um, isn't there a scene later on with Chopper's in the background? I don't. Oh, jeez, I didn't even see Chopper. Jeez, Chopper's in there, and there is obviously the easiest one to spot is the 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 paging call for General Sindula. Yeah, paging General Sindula. I mean, they're they're future proofing that so that they can actually have that in a, an episode of Rebels where they do actually interact with this battle sequence. Obviously, which may be their end. We don't know yet. We were on the it last was- season. Um, but there's, you also get to see the ghost in the space battle briefly. It's like on the. I'm gonna have to, I didn't see it. I saw it froze, freeze framed on a YouTube video. It, so that that one is literally a blink and miss it. The the high angle wide shot you can clearly see it's the ghost off or it's on the left hand side of the screen top corner. Okay. And but, during the built on hope scene, uh, it was really cool to see Kanan and Ezra uh, sharing a cup of calf. What? What are you? What? When? What? What? Oh, sorry. I've been doing improv classes. Lately, oh, you so get ignore me. <laughs> you got yourself. <laughs> you got him real good. Okay. Um, <laughs> however, it does lead me on to a, 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 a neat point. I looked at the original photos of this when it first came out and thought it looks kind of dour, but it could end up being like a serious serenity in space. Only because the idea in serenity is you can't stop the signal. Um, only whereas Jomps Wobben decided not to kill everyone. This is one where most of them are probably going to die. And I thought that this would be like Serenity in Space. The difference being, Serenity has got great dialogue, and uh, they all know each other and mostly like each other, whereas these guys don't know each other or like each other and have nothing to say to each other, which makes it not like Serenity. But superficially speaking, it kind of is. Mm. However, a bunch of guys who do like each other and have been hanging around for ages the guys in Star Wars Rebels. Now, I feel after watching the third series, which actually annoyed the piss out of me, I really liked the first season. Second season, I I felt, did not capitalize enough on Vader. Third season did not capitalize enough on Thrawn. Um, But it's it's rounding up now, and it's going to finish off um, with season four. It really oh, that's feels right. like it had a deadline. It really feels like season three could have been their, or season two could have been their second and final season. And then Rogue One basically takes place at the end of the season, which they've been leading up to. And the way it works is much like Serenity. You get introduced to these characters, so you don't have to have seen Rebels. It's all live action. And you've already got these well-defined characters, but it's in a more groany, uppy environment. It can even be like, you know, they could have all had haircuts and it's been, you know, some, some shit's gone down. But they're the guys who steal the plans. And that's the point of Rebels as the uh, TV show. And, and, you know, it might be that they end up being vital to the alternative for getting away. Um, and they might all die in a fiery firestorm, or maybe some of them will die. Or maybe I'm, I'm worried because I do care about a lot of the characters. But if this film had been about the guys from Rebels, I would have been totally on board with that, and they would have talked to each other. And like you could even bring in Jin Erso and have her relationship with her father. But at the same time, it all like it feels like one too many. It feels like um, uh, like in the. Chronicles of Narnia, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when they suddenly brought in that guy and his daughter, and it's like, who the fuck are these people?
people. <laughs> it's like that they've been added to the story to, to help them like ramp up uh, a, a, a new storyline that they'd added to, uh, um, to to beef up the we must save all of Narnia, which they hadn't had in there before. But at the same time, I also get and appreciate the need to separate themselves from a Jedi story. And I think that's yeah. very cool yeah. that they were able to do so. But you're right, uh, Rebels-based Death Star heist would have been really cool. Yeah. Although that way, Alan Tudyk doesn't die again. Very nice. The, the idea of, of um, the, the, the Rebels Rogue One got me thinking. And, and I also thought about what both Rebels and Rogue One have now replaced, which is The Force Unleashed, which is a... Like, very bitty game, the first one, and a very flawed second game. But there was a strong story in there of Vader and his apprentice, and then the guy goes off and, um, like, does Vader's bidding, hunts down Jedi, then starts to have a change of heart and ends up inadvertently forming the Rebellion. And then he dies saving them, you know, spoiler warning for, like, a ten-year-old game. And, uh... His family crest is that phoenix symbol, the um, the the one that's on Luke Skywalker's helmets. The, the the rebellion owes them their lives, and that's not there either. And it feels like they could possibly have incorporated that into in some way into either this or like maybe that Galen's symbol was that. So you know, it's it's that. The bravery have- of Galen and Jyn Erso could have been that that they then end up sticking very newly on their on their ships when they go take down the Death Star, and that gives message that gives a meaning uh, to the symbolism of that particular sacrifice. This is the new canon that replaced the old, and obviously Sabine in Rebels uses that sigil in her graffiti, and it would have made perfect sense had Rogue One been all about the self-sacrifice of the crew of the Ghost. I don't know if it's a direct tie-in to, to Unleashed with Rebels, but um, what happens to Kanan? Yeah. Uh, the, the general guy that ends up taking Starkiller under his wing and helping Correct. him. Yeah. Same I, thing I felt that, that felt very uh, similar, actually. Yeah, no spoilers there for, for Rebels, but yeah. Unless you know what happened to Rom Kotor, in which case, sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, Oh, Master Kota, I was trying to come up with his name. Thank you, I could not remember. Oh, sorry, yeah, I called him Rom, Rom Kotor, Knights of the Old Republic. <laughs> it is Kota, yeah. Um, they, they had a guy on there called Kazdan Paratus, who was obviously named after Lawrence Kazdan. He was one of the bosses you fight. But, you yeah, know, I think Force Unleashed remains my favourite Star Wars game. It's the, All of the levels are way too long. Like they are, work, they really outstay their welcome, and some of them you got to revisit. Uh, but I mean, if you want to talk about overpowered, just to come back to rain stuff, then you seriously overpower the Jedi in that though, because the scene where Star Killer pulls down the Star Destroyer. Yeah, and that should have been cool, but that took me forever because you actually have to yes. ignore the on-screen prompts and just yes. oh, use the, the force. <sighs> so I have to use the force and not follow the prompts to use the force. Brilliant! How clever of you. <laughs> It does, it's not just that the game is broken. Um, but the other thing that I thought about, and this is, comes into my whole um, Gareth Edwards lining up a bunch of action figures. When, like, in February of uh, this year, I was in Toys R Us and I was looking at the Rogue One action figures and I was like, I don't want to get any of these. I got a load of um, six-inch scale uh, Black Series action figures from The Force Awakens from these wonderful characters that I love. I don't want to get any of these Rogue One guys because they're all dead and they didn't like each other and they'd only just met. So you can't even do like, well, imagine what would happen before Rogue One because like they they hadn't even met each other. There's there's nothing like all you can really do as a kid is play out 
that precise the the exact actions of Rogue One which were not particularly fantastic I mean you know obviously as a kid with a lot of imagination you could go well what if they didn't die and like you could possibly take a couple of them off who already did know each other like you like um, Baz and uh, um, it and like give them a little uh, uh, adventure but I think like for, for kids the idea that the first Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back and even Return of the Jedi gave you a whole bunch of figures that you could tell your own stories with and you could do Star Wars scenarios from there and you could go and what happened in between the movies um, but with Rogue One the self-contained thing works against the merchandising for kids at least I think I, I have a gin pop but I have two Ray Pops so balances out here's the crazy thing when I went and saw this movie for the first time I had not even considered the fact that these characters weren't in any other lore weren't in any other future films there were no references to any of them hadn't even dawned on me till about three quarters of the way through the movie when I then gasped because I realized what was going to happen to all of them <laughs> and that is that is how I like to watch a movie actually I would much rather be sucked in by the story and be following it beat by beat I try like with films I do not think ahead and try to predict anything like that hmm. if I'm watching The Flash or if I'm watching some um, there was a cop drama that the wife and I were watching a while ago we, we don't do it very oh it was Castle um, because I'm a Nathan Fillion nut uh, watching something like that I'm like oh this person did this and that and the other thing and also blah 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 and I can predict all those things but I somehow am able to turn that part of my brain off during a film hmm. and I love being able to do that because then those moments of oh no can happen yeah. uh, and really, uh, really yeah, touch I, me. I don't often get that, but Spider-Man Homecoming did that to me with the uh, oh, Peter nice. knocking on the door. Yeah. Oh my and gosh, there I, are a couple I of nearly screamed. That. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, honestly, The Force Awakens kind of uh, blindsided me repeatedly, and um, uh, that was extremely pleasing. Civil War, one of my maybe my favorite film at the moment. I wasn't sitting there predicting what would happen the whole way through, and I'm going to be keeping my brain in order before we go in and see uh, Infinity War. I've got suspicion as to what might happen, but I don't want to overthink it. So this is why I'm I'm, I'm kind of opposed, not polar opposed, but I'm opposed to the culture of. Uh, taking apart every fragment, every frame of the trailer, and explain basically like plotting out the exact film uh, for myself. Because why would I do that? Why am See, I, I paying for it if I already know it all? Yeah, I, well, it's I just to prove like, that I'm so right. I, I like the- I'm so clever. Wait, wrong. I like theory crafting, but up to a point. I like talking to it, about it with my friends, you know, and thinking, oh, it could go this way, it could go that way, and da 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 da. But I'm perfectly happy as well to go. Uh, but I'm happy if I'm wrong because it's nice to go. Ooh. Yeah, I like. I, had- I love being blindsided by a movie where just like <gasps> another thing I really liked, red and gold leaders. That was nicely done. And oh. why is there? And why does Luke end up on, on the red squad? Because red five explode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also kind of and liked- hammerhead corvettes. Hammerhead corvettes were in there. That made me happy. That was that. Were they from uh, Clone Wars? They're from Kotor. Oh, Kotor! Well, of a, course, yeah. A, a, a version of them. So this is like a four thousand year old spaceship. No, I think they've been changed over time. But yes, the the, the Hammerhead first appeared, I think, God, in Kotor. I, I thought for some reason my brain went. I must have seen them in something before. And was probably Clone Wars. But yeah, no, you're right. Kotor. Nice callback. 
I, I wonder if at some point in an, I'll, I'll use this clip in a later show, Disney will actually do a KOTOR movie. It feels like that's a, a fertile ground to tell a story. Well, I know Rebels has definitely made part of it canon, so here's hoping. Was it Revan? It was the Mandalorian's war with the Jedi. Thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's hopefully Revan, because I love. <laughs> I, love I wanted to be Revan, and then the movie turns into a choose-your-own-adventure. Like <laughs> back in the day when Revan. Wait, what did Revan do again? Player from Game One. Nice. <laughs> Um, I, I will say that it, one of the last moments, like it was really heartbreaking the first time I saw it, but then the second and third time, when Jin and Cassian just like stagger from the um, uh, spire and then like stagger down to the beach and collapse and then stare at the explosion coming towards them, it feels now like you're there for an, a hell of a long time. The amount of time that it takes to have a, a daring yeah. get, getaway. Try, try to get away. On the other hand, the actual moment when the Death Star first starts looming and the music gets sad because Michael Giacchino is a genius, um, it really got to me. Just this sense of there is certain thing, there are certain things you cannot escape. And I was saying to Sharon earlier, we, we saw um, Kate and Leopold, and then uh, the Lake House, and both movies like shoehorn in a happy ending at the exact point where there could actually have been a really sad, sobering ending that the lead character grows from. And I thought, there aren't enough movies that present you with, you know, sometimes life doesn't work out and you kind of got to, you know, live with the terrible stuff that's happened and and move on from that. Because just watching constant things will be all right in the end, happy endings, conditions us to go, to just sort of lose our shit when things go wrong in real life. We're like, things aren't supposed to be this way. Whereas in real life, most of the time, things don't go your way. And very occasionally, you get the good luck to have a happy ending, briefly. Or at best, you end up polyfillering over mm. everything to make it all look it's all smooth there are no cracks now I don't know exactly what Jin and Cassian could have learned whilst being blown up but I think the whole idea of like if you go up against the Empire you probably might get killed seems you know it, it makes the Empire seem like horrible people that really do need to be taken out it is it is possible to read into that ending um, the idea that basically this is, this is two people who in one way or another have been fighting their whole lives Mm. And this is a moment where they get to just lay all that aside and just be with each other yeah. in that moment of the end. They have a moment of peace. Yeah. They're not fighting yeah. anything. There's no need to fight. And they sort of also have the last laugh because while they may no longer be able to fight, they've got the plans away. Mm. And, their super, and the super weapon isn't as super as they think it is. And that would have been more powerful had Saw Gerrera not earlier in the film gone, well, I'm done. I'm just going to stand here and look at an explosion and wait for it to hit me in the face. Because that's just echoing that. Which, I mean, to a degree, you could interpret that as that being making it better. Or you could interpret that as this director and writer team don't know how to kill their characters unless they get blown up or die bloodlessly off screen during an explosion. Um, I think he probably just walked into the Borgullet chamber and gave him a big hug. <laughs> give me a good hug. Don't Have watch your tentacle watched... there, Borgullet. <laughs> hey, you're right. Four of them explode. Yep. Uh, and that's the other thing. Like, um, once uh, um, Chewick gets killed, Baz wanders off into a bunch of... Like, he kills two stormtroopers, and the second yeah. one drops a grenade, and he blows up. And it's like, couldn't he have died defending something which, had he not been there would have been like that would have been really really bad that feels like reshoot stuff 
that feels like, yes. well, we've got to kill him, and I suppose this will be a good way. Like, his life partner dies, and he's sad about it, so he just wants to join him in the afterlife or meet um, Infinity on his own terms, and, and so he dies. It, it's, it's an alright death, um, and it feels noble enough, but it also feels like you could probably have used your life better during this fight. Okay, I apologise. I hate being this guy. The book slightly delves into what he was. He takes out a lot more stormtroopers in the book. But it also delves into talking or going on about the Force and the light and the dark side and anger because he's filled with anger at this point, but it's a righteous anger. So while he's chanting the mantra, he's filled with this righteous anger. So yeah, just slightly, slightly more interesting. But I'm one with the Force. The Force is with me. I'm feeling righteous anger. Maybe that's when he, you know, that I could see that being a tie-in to how Chirrut has described his fearlessness, which was, you know, the Force wills what's going on, and maybe maybe that was a moment where Baze was channeling that part of Chirrut that he apparently treasured. Um, that is sweet, and no I would fear. have loved to see them, some, them uh, yeah, just more of them. Like, frankly, Show me. if they'd been the only guys in this film, I would have been fine with that. A Donnie Yen Star Wars film? Yeah, thanks. I, I did really like, actually, the fact that they, they deliver the lines slightly differently. So, um, from Chirrut, it's, uh, I am one with the Force, the Force is with me. When Baze does it, it's, the Force is with me, and I am one with the Force. And the, the emphasis is slightly different, and it just, it kind of... It feels like the source of their strength comes from a slightly different place. Mm. Uh, Chirrut seems is drawing on it from outside and bringing it into himself. Baze is taking that love from inside himself and projecting mm. it outwards. Almost as though Baze is taking... Because uh, Chirrut's one of his very last moments, last lines was like, look to the force, that's where I'll be kind of a thing. Mm. So maybe because of their relationship, Bayes wanted to say, you know, the force is with me. The force being Chirrut and his memory yeah. is with me. And that is my connection to the force. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I just got goosebumps. Nice. Well, we, we hope, folks, that we can, like, with just a couple of little things that we've made the film, even if they weren't intentional when they put it together, and then afterwards when they put it together again, um, that we've managed to give, the, give it a little more flavor, a little bit more of a tingle, you know, here and there. The How It Should Have Ended um, review video, have any of you watched that I for Rogue One? I probably um, watched it, but I can't. It's not springing to mind. I have I have a lot of uh, love for no, that channel. The, the only one I remember is they're the one that made the dad, dad jokes quip about uh, the choke on your um, not ambition, whatever it was. <laughs> said it earlier. Oh, um, that might have been in the actual how it should have ended. I think uh, I, I rewatched the, the the review video that they made today, and um, the narrator. I don't know. I don't know the content creator's name, but the narrator um, was kind of just going through his uh, reaction to the film. And his take for Rogue One was that its undergoing theme was about trust and how um, trust can really affect all the different relationships within uh, within this film. And he claimed that he, he interpreted Chirrut as kind of the basis for trust in this movie. He trusts in the Force. He does not fear um, because he trusts that that is whatever is going to happen is happening for a reason because the force wills it and those are echoed within the relationships between Jin and Cassian between uh, the rebellion and Jin uh, between a bunch of different characters and that was his takeaway and I, and I like that interpretation 
And I believe that's Rogue One. We will be back next week with The Last Jedi. My God. It feels like I've been waiting a long time. What's that, two years now? Two years. It feels a lot longer. <laughs> it's still uh, one third less than we used to have to wait. I need to set aside some time to see. So do I. Yeah, I've got my time, but yeah, you may need to go on like Thursday night. Possibly. Possibly. She says possibly all the time. It just reminds me of that that bit when Obi-Wan, I think in episode two, Anakin sort of like goes, yeah, well, maybe you're wrong. And Obi-Wan goes, possibly. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, don't let him win. Little punk. Yeah, we will be back uh, next week with The Last Jedi. And following that, the re-releases of our Star Wars trilogy, the original podcast that we recorded back in 2010. Now, with extra material from our commentaries. No one ever mentions the commentaries. So these are the special editions. Yeah, these are the special editions. But rather than being worse, they're better. Because they have more John Williams music, a lot more insight. And, you know, I took out some of the stupid shit that I said back in 2010. It was only me. You guys were all on point. But me, I said some <laughs> stupid shit. And these Are will you be, sure? These will be, I'm also going to be allowing the original versions to be listened to. If you really want to listen to them, they're right there. <laughs> but uh, uh, Can I just say again? Standard really? definition. It's, it's nearly eight years ago we did those? Oh, uh, yes. Eight years ago. And, wow. Uh, yeah. It was... Uh, it was a different time, and uh, an innocent time. But uh, yeah, no, we we did uh, we did we recorded them originally. They were like an hour and a half each, and then me and uh, Sharon and these two here recorded full commentaries for Star Wars, Empire, and Jedi. They were they're really great little uh, commentaries. But most people haven't been able to listen to them, and most people don't like. It doesn't seem like many people actually bought the Blu-rays. So. Like, so that no one's missing out, I'm getting the best bits of those. I've incorporated them into the original podcast, added a lot more John Williams music, and they are going to be Ultimate Edition Original Trilogy Star Wars podcast. That is your New Year treat, guys. You're going to get nearly eight hours worth of Star Wars to listen to. Some old, some new, but all interesting. More Star Wars, woo! (laughs) There's always room for more Star Wars. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we'll see you next week for The Last Jedi. The week after that is the original trilogy. And then we start in January with the Disney Renaissance again, starting with Pocahontas. And I'm going to say an extra special thank you to all our patrons this month. You know who you are. And those at the super-duper sponsor level who get to be called out. I want to say thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Muth Sarah, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush. Daniel Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisham. All of you guys, thank you. So, uh, where can folks find your work? Neil first. Uh, you can find me over on YouTube at the uh, youtube.com forward slash thekiddog. And Alex? Uh, you can find some of my uh, voice work on Code Geass, uh, Akito the Exiled anime series, uh, and I also performed in the English dubs recently for The Villainess, which looks like a Korean-made like Black Widow origin story. It's not Marvel-related, but it looks really silly and fun uh, from what I was able to witness. And uh, I was also in um, the English dub of one of Donnie Yen's recent films called Chasing the Dragon. All right. 
chasing the dragon. I will be chasing the dragon myself, chasing down... Oh, it looks ridiculous and I can't wait to see it. So, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And may May the the force force be be with with you. you. To play us out, I have two special things for you. First up, it's James Earl Jones reading Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass is one of my all-time heroes. He's the guy based Thomas W. Arlington on, and few other key figures in America's history had the balls of this man. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes that would disgrace a nation of savages. Originally, that was in the middle of this podcast, but it was just so powerful that it was impossible to follow up. The music you're about to hear is not Michael Giacchino, it's John Williams, and it popped onto my iPod as I was walking home from Rogue One at 2.30 in the morning on a December night in 2016. And it is just perfect, like even more perfect than any of the music in Rogue One, for summoning to mind images of this conflict between the Rebels and the Empire. And it's not Star Wars, and it's from a movie most of you won't have seen. It's actually from Nixon, the 1995 Oliver Stone movie about the aftermath of Watergate with Anthony Hopkins. I suggest everyone watches that along with all the president's men and the post to prepare for the shit show that's coming and also to learn a little history. But in the meantime, this music, The Turbulent Years, feels far more appropriate for AT-AT walkers versus X-wings with troops running back and forth along the ground and a desperate struggle for survival than it does for corruption in the White House.
Got so obsessed with Bogolit. Well, he's just the he's the most out of place part of the movie. It's like he's hang the on, what? Of 2016. Uh, he's he's the kind of thing like you like you forget about it when you're seeing it the first time, but the second time, you're like hang on, what was this scene in aid of? Like you could lift that. That's a deleted scene that failed to be deleted. We missed one. <laughs> It it's because so he needed information. It, it, it leaves like, with more questions than answers. All he had to say was, "We will see what you really know." And just just leave it like that. It's much more scary that way. Mm. But instead, he's got a fucking greebly monster. <laughs> Imagine Although like, I- like a serious actor Forrest Whitaker being told like push your face up against these bars and start cackling <laughs> about this tennis ball on a stick and what it's going to be doing to this other serious actor. Or sensitive. That's how he can do all this shit. No, Paul Gullet is Snoke. Oh. Ah! <laughs> Your Snoke theory sucks. <laughs> well, tell that to Bogolet. Oh, no. I just, I Paul Gullet was Luke all along. I heard Argo saying that. Uh, no, Bogolet was what they sent around the universe to wipe out memory of the prequels. <laughs> <laughs> right, so apparently Luke says three words to Ray when she first turns up on the island. It's, it's just a like, fetch me, Paul Gullet. <laughs> We will see who you really are. Like, I'm fine with just telling you. Yeah. We will see who you really are, my slippery friend. <laughs> 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 and a problem in writing it.